Officials from all three military departments acknowledge their organizations have dropped the ball when it comes to providing decent housing for service members. That's after a scathing audit that found widespread health and safety risks in government-operated barracks. Defense officials say they're working to solve the problem, but after years of underinvestment, it'll take time to improve living conditions. Details from Federal News Network's Jared Serbu. In site visits to military barracks, the Government Accountability Office found problems like overflowing sewage, mold and mildew, broken locks and air conditioning systems, and numerous other ways unaccompanied housing falls short of DOD's own facility standards. Aunt Elizabeth Field, GAO's Director for Defense Capabilities and Management, says the military services likely don't even know the full scope of the problem. Military barracks are used to house our most junior enlisted service members, many of them teenagers fresh out of high school. Unfortunately, because of this, we found that many, although not all, department officials have chosen not to obtain their input about the quality of their housing. According to these officials, this demographic group is so unreliable in terms of completing surveys or replying to email or telephone inquiries that it isn't worth trying to solicit their opinion. Other officials told us that the condition of barracks is not a key factor in military retention and therefore doesn't merit inclusion as a topic in already lengthy surveys. What we learned, however, is that these service members have a lot to say and are eager for someone to listen. In addition to the physical inspections, GAO held listening sessions at a dozen installations. At all 12, service members said they had concerns about health and safety bad enough to affect their mental health. Senior enlisted leaders at eight bases said the same thing. We heard from residents of barracks that uh, because they are so uncomfortable in their barracks rooms, they have a hard time sleeping, they're tired on the job, they don't feel like they can perform and, and focus on the work that they have to do. We also heard from first sergeants who are responsible for training uh, these junior enlisted service members. And they say, uh, they, they told us uh, specifically that sometimes they, they take it easier on them in training. They will uh, cut back the length of runs or the specific drills they're going to put their service members through because they know they're going home to the barracks at night. So clear readiness implications there. Defense officials say GAO's findings didn't come as a surprise. Carla Colson is the Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Army for Installations, Housing, and Partnerships. I think it's through many years of, of not uh, looking closely at the deferred maintenance, at investments. And so now we are, in effect, playing catch-up. And this is not the report, frankly, was not news to the Army. We're well aware, and uh, our leadership from our secretary, our chief of staff, on down, uh, are focusing uh, very clearly on quality of life, and barracks is a piece of that. The Army is by far the biggest operator of government-owned barracks. Out of 9,000 buildings across the military services, the Army owns 6,700 of them. Colson says 23% are in poor or failing condition, and the Army is now spending about $1.2 billion a year in restoration and modernization funds to improve their condition. According to GAO, though, across the military services, there is a deferred maintenance backlog of about $137 billion. And Field says that's likely an underestimate because DOD doesn't have reliable data on the true condition of its barracks, even though each one is inspected every five years. So, for example, we went to a facility in the D.C. area that had a score of 86 out of 100, which sounds pretty good. 
that facility had a quarter of its air conditioning broken. So a quarter of residents had no air conditioning, and yet it still had an 86. And this happened again and again where we would go to installations and the scores just did not make sense. We tried to figure out what's going on. Why is this a problem? And we identified a few issues. One, uh, they, the frequency of assessments was, was likely not enough. Uh, right now the DOD standard is every five years. Consistently, installation commanders told us five years is not frequent enough. Uh, and in some cases, they weren't even doing them that frequently. So that's a problem. Another one is the number of systems that they're assessing. There are th 13 building systems that they're supposed to be assessing. In some cases, they don't always do that. Another is the training of the uh, inspectors. They may not have training. There's no standard right now. Some services like the Air Force do have standard. They hire personnel with expertise to do the inspections. Uh, some uh, services do not. Uh, some take a centralized model where the same team will go out and inspect various barracks across the services. Others have a decentralized model. So we have a recommendation to DOD to reassess everything from requirements for frequency to, to standards to inspector training. Robert Thompson, the Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Navy for Energy, Installations, and Environment, says in the wake of the GAO report, officials from the military services and the Office of the Secretary of Defense have started re-examining those standards and whether they're the right ones to use for living spaces. You know, there needs to be a standard for livability, right? There needs to be a, a, a plain-eyed, clear-eyed view of what the standard is for this place to be dignified, safe, and comfortable. So I do think we have a, taken our expertise in facilities, just moved it right on over into essentially barracks, mm -hmm. and then we expect that to, to serve us well there. And again, even if we trained everyone, even if we had consistency in application, I think we're still missing something there. In recent years, the military services have habitually underfunded maintenance for all of their facilities, spending only about 80% of what DOD's own models say is needed to keep buildings in good working order. But even within that larger underfunded pie, barracks have tended to get the short end of the stick. Field says the same is true for military construction funding. A lot of times, even though installations know they need funding for constructing new barracks, uh, they don't feel uh, comfortable requesting that funding because they know it won't compete well against other uh, requirements, and so they don't put those uh, requests forward. It really is a matter, though, of, of chronic underfunding at the DOD level, not on Congress's part. Eventually, if you don't fund sustainment enough, you're going to need to build an entirely new barracks, which means you need new MILCON, military construction funding. And eventually, if you don't do that, you're going to have to spend money on basic allowance for housing to get service members to live in the economy because you just can't find a place for them to live. So I think it's a combination of that chronic underfunding and neglect, but also that lack of accountability. I think there has been a cultural perspective within the department that part of being in the military is toughing it out. And you know, this, this is just going to get them ready for the military. And unfortunately, I think that has, that has gotten us in part to where we are today. Robert Moriarty, the Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Air Force for Installations, says his service recognizes the underfunding problem and has been making moves to give barracks their own dedicated funding source. I think the Air Force, we did lose the bubble. We used to have a dorm focus fund. We went away from that. And when we centralized a lot of our installation management, when we put all the money together, we've gone back now back to the past, and we now have a focus fund, if you will, where we set aside the amount of funds we think we need to keep the dorms good and accelerate that. So they do compete within there from the top line, but then they compete amongst themselves so we can target our investments at, at our worst dorms first. In all, GAO made 31 recommendations in its latest report. 
DOD concurred with most of them. But Field says Congress may want to consider enacting those recommendations into law because it's not the first time DOD has agreed to implement fixes as the problem continues to worsen. She says GAO brought some of the same issues to the department's attention during audits 10 years ago and 20 years ago. If we don't see the department implement all 31 of our recommendations in a meaningful and timely manner, I would encourage you to consider putting those recommendations into legislation to make them statutorily required. That is something that has happened with uh, privatized family housing, uh, and I think that has been effective. I I will note that the department concurred with most of our recommendations, but in some cases there were partial concurrences and statements that they've already implemented the recommendations, and so they're good. Uh, they're not good. Jared Serbu, Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. And you can find more of Jared's reporting at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Excellent. We're we're going through a a culture project at our work. Oh, great. It's it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I I 
I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead and I want to hear from you. And I realized in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way. 
and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, 
thinking about, can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life, and I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years, yeah. um, and work alongside you. Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.